Good morning, Anthem Church. How's everybody doing? Y'all going to have to get a little bit more livelier than that, or we're going to be here for a while. So the hardest part about any message to me is this part that Rick always does at the last minute and says, introduce yourself. That is by, by far the hardest thing I'll ever have to do. I'm Perry. I like that. That's good. That's good. Took a little bit of pressure off of me. I appreciate that. So uh, technically, Becky, my wife, and I, we are the coordinators of about one-third of Anthem Church that just migrated out of this building. Uh, um, this building. If they're out of the building, security's going to stop them. <laughs> this is going to be a long morning, I can tell already. So <clears throat> that, that's sort of what we do. Uh, that's sort of who we are. Uh, I'm Perry. I'm glad you're here. I am more excited today than I have been in a while, which for you, I want to go ahead and give you a little bit of a warning. This is going to be a little problematic. I'm going to apologize up front. So if you don't know, I have had like this bubonic plague type thing going on. I have spent thousands of dollars, went to three doctors, and the, the diagnosis has been, eh, I, mm, I. take this, see if this works. So uh, for about four weeks, I, I haven't been, in, I, I, you've probably been a little incognito. You hadn't seen me, hadn't been here. I've honestly been without a voice over the last four weeks for probably about three weeks and one day of that. I'll get a little bit of voice back. My wife, Becky, has absolutely loved it. <laughs> she's been telling me stuff she's been trying to get in for years, evidently, and, and I've not. So, so I, I, my ears are, are burning a little bit. I've been, I've been talked out a little bit. So the thing that you should know, uh, number one, anytime someone that stands at this place, preacher-wise, says he hasn't had a voice for a few weeks, we're going to be here about 18 hours, okay? So <laughs> any point you need to go to the bathroom, just go, come back. Also, you should know this. I wasn't expecting this, but I got sort of a, a crowd. My, 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 my crew showed up that I wasn't expecting. Any, anytime, <clears throat> that's right, y'all. Now, that was weak. If you're going to clap, clap. What you should know, anytime the guy that stands up to preach to you, if he brings in reinforcements, it's going to get hairy at some point in time, and he's afraid he's going to have to fight his way to the door, so he bought some, some people just to back him up on that. I'm more excited about this morning than I have been in a long, long time about a message that I get to preach. And I'm going to give you a couple of the reasons why. Number one, Satan's a punk, and, and this message was supposed to be preached about three weeks ago. So uh, this has been dwelling up. Evidently, I say this all the time, that preaching is simply an overflow of what God's doing in the preacher's heart. So evidently, I needed to digest this for a little bit longer is the best that I can figure out. Um, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the series. In all the series that we... Series is this. It's this. Perry English is a thing for the next 60 minutes-ish or so. So if I say a word that doesn't make sense, I just made it up and we're going to roll with it. But uh, in this series, of all the series we've done, this is probably my most excited because we're in this series called... All right, y'all haven't been paying attention. We're in a series, Absurd. Rick defined the idea of absurd greatly a couple weeks ago when he said this. It's simply something outside of what we deem to be or perceive to be the norm. Okay? Everything, we're going to get into this in a second, everything about Christianity and being a disciple of Jesus is absurd. Thank you. This doesn't make sense. We'll get into a little bit of that more in just a second. I'm also a little bit excited. Uh, so in my absence... If you do not know, our, our children's ministry is multiplying a lot. Um, so we've done a little division, revision, multiplication. I don't know what we've done, but now we've got some extra things. And last week was sort of the week that we kicked that off. Well, leading up to that, I had a whole list of like honeydew stuff. 
that I couldn't, honey, do nothing. And you people, some of you ladies, some of you guys stepped up and have kept me out of the doghouse tremendously. And I want to say thank you for that. Also, <clears throat> today is probably one of my top five favorite passages of all time in the scripture. Now, what you should know, Rick's sitting close, so I'm not going to look at him when I say this. This is also one of Rick's passages, and originally, he was going to preach this, so we had an arm wrestling contest. <laughs> it was best two out of three, but let's just say we didn't have to go to the third one, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so if you got a Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Now, there's no shame in this game, okay? If you don't know where Judges chapter 7 is, I'm praying my voice holds out. It just cracked a little bit. If I have to, you know, like, hug up a lung, they're going to turn the mic off for a second. Judges chapter 7, no shame in this game. The seventh book in the Bible, the seventh book, Genesis, Exodus. I'm so scared of doing this, I'm going to forget a book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. If you still can't find it, turn to the front of the book. There is a table of contents. Look up the page. If anybody laughs at you, throw an elbow and tell them Perry said it was okay to do that, okay? Judges chapter 7. <clears throat> Here's why I'm so excited about this series and about this idea of absurd. Before we even get into the day's specific topic about the idea of absurd obedience, we live in a culture and a world that tells us we should put everything into a neat little package. And that just does not work when it comes to the idea of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That does not work. It does not work to put everything in a neat little package and say this should be normal, this should be normal, this shouldn't be normal. Especially in the face of what I call church consumerism. When we want to just come in and sit down and get a good word and a pat on the back and leave, this idea of the things that God calls us to do and be is absurd. It just doesn't work and it just doesn't fit. Let me prove that to you. A couple weeks ago, Rick made a very simple little statement. said that God loves us. You know how absurd that is? Do you know how stinking absurd it is to think about the fact that the person who hung the stars in the sky and spoke into existence everything that we know loves us specifically by name? Let me use Perry for an example. He loves Perry in spite of Perry. He loves Perry even though he knows Perry better than anybody else knows Perry. He loves Perry. There's nothing that Perry can do to make God love me more. There's nothing that I could do to make God love me less. He loved me enough that he sent his only son from heaven to earth to pay a debt that Perry owed and could never pay. He loved me enough to go to any extreme to know me in a real and personal way. That is absurd. That is absolutely absurd and contrary to human logic and reasoning. Let me prove this to you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. We see that on lots of t-shirts and plaques and stuff like that. But that verse tells us that the ways and the workings of God are way outside of the realm of human logic and reasoning. It makes no sense that God would love me. <clears throat> Let me explain it to you a little bit better. Everything about Christianity, we roll this into the absurd package, is like this. For those of you who don't know, we were part of a church plant. At the end of that church plant, I got pretty sick. The church, I survived, the church didn't. That's the cliff notes, to be honest with you. <clears throat> At the end of that, we went to a church as sort of a healing time. We love that church. We love the pastor there. We love the worship there. We love everything about that church. Except for the fact that the vision of that church is to serve where you live, and the Holy Spirit of God is only he could do. He started saying, Perry, you're not serving where you're living. Uh, 
So we started looking for churches where we live. Well, what you need to know is that we knew about Anthem Church. I've known some of you in here for years. If you don't know this, these chairs were part of that church plant. Rick came to my house and bought them years ago for Anthem Church. I knew Anthem Church was here. I remember when this was a motorcycle shop. I just dated myself very badly. <laughs> but all along, as we'd go to a church and leave and say, hey, that's not it. What about Anthem Church? Nah. What about Anthem Church? Nope. What about Anthem Church? Nope. Here's why you need to know that. Because I'd made a little deal with God. I know y'all are much more spiritual than I am, but sometimes I had these little conversations with God. I'm like, look, God, I'll serve where I live. I'm not going to be a part of a church plan again, okay? Nearly killed myself, nearly killed my family. I'm not going to be a part of a church. Ain't it funny how we sort of draw the line and say and tell God so? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> then as only God could do, as I continued to say, no, I'm not going to Anthem Church. One day my darling bride said, hey, what about Anthem Church? <laughs> so we came to Anthem Church. And I left. said, so I'm not going back. It's a church plant. I'm not going to be a part of a church plant. What was wrong? Nothing. Why aren't you going back? I'm not going back. And as my darling bride via AKA the Holy Spirit, maybe we should go back. No, I don't want to go back. So anyway, that's how we ended up here. But let me prove to you this idea of absurd. This is, there's a rhyme to this reason. Of all the people that from the first Sunday we came, stepped foot in this building, one person, God in his infinite wisdom and through the power of his Holy Spirit, attracted me to this place. I just about, and I learned my lesson about this a long time ago, preaching at a youth event where I said, I bet you can't guess something. If you do, I'll give you $100. And there was one little dude in the back that guessed it. And I was like, uh-oh, I ain't got $100. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I would just about bet you that you cannot guess who this person is from the first time that I walked into this door that God meshed our hearts together. Ironically, as God would do that, we had just been here for a little time, and our first A-team was a men's A-team and a women's A-team. I was in the men's A-team. This person was in... <laughs> Connecting the dots. I was in the men's A team. This person was in the men's A team from the first week. He was talking, and I was talking, and it's just, and God meshed our hearts together. This shows you the idea that everything about this idea of Christianity, when we get down to the nuts and bolts, is absurd. That person was Rico. Now, let me tell you, no, that's not an all moment. You always get caught off. <laughs> I'm never prepared for girls in the all moment. Let me tell you why that's so absurd. <clears throat> Everything outside of the walls of this building and the realm of Christianity would say that shouldn't happen. Everything outside of the walls of this church and the realm of Christianity would say, you two can't be meshed together. They would say, he can't send me texts that say, bro, praying for you, praying for your voice, praying for this cough. What do you need? Matter of fact, everything outside of this door would say not only could we not have that relationship, but that we should be finding reasons to be at each other's throat and contrary and against each other. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the absurdity of the fact that God would die to make me his son and that God would die to make him his son, we can have a kinship that's stronger than blood. That is absurd. It's outside of the norm of human logic and reasoning. Absurd. So many things, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, when we look at the person and the work of God and what he calls us to and the life that we live, it's absolutely absurd. And today we get to look at the idea of absurd obedience. Absurd obedience. <clears throat> now, Rick and I sort of joke a little bit about this. Some of you joke a little bit about this. I have this morning three characteristics 
about um, absurd obedience. I don't think that's the only way to preach. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. <clears throat> you don't have to have three points in a poem. But if I did not have points, we would be here for 18 hours, and I would still be in the introduction. I need it for the structure, okay? So characteristic number one, as we look at this idea of absurd obedience, is this. should be on the screen. Absurd obedience requires courage. Number one, what do we have to do before we can even figure this out? We've got to define courage. What's courage? Think about that for a second. Don't let it just be a term that we use. Judges chapter 7, we're getting there in a second. Don't let it just be a term that we use. But what is this idea of courage? Is courage the lack of fear? Nope. Courage is not the lack of fear. Courage is when we have that fear, we put more weight on the reward than we do on the risk. Let that sink in for just a second. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's not the absence of anxiety. It's not the absence of, I don't know what's going to happen here. Fear is simply that in the midst of all those emotions, excuse me, courage, in the midst of all those emotions, courage is the fact that we put more weight on what the reward is than we do on the risk. Flip that all the way around. If you want to define what a coward is, a coward's a man or a woman that puts way more weight on the risk than they do the possible reward. So if we want to be characterized by absurd obedience as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, it is going to require courage in our life. Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, tell us this. <clears throat> then Jerubbabel... Okay, I promise you I'm getting farther than this, but i got to do this. This is like my ADD, ESPN, all that stuff kicks in at this. Especially any time that somebody's pregnant, and I'm in an Old Testament passage reading something. The whole time Becky was pregnant with Will of Grace, and if I was preaching anything through the Old Testament, I'd be like, there's a good name. <laughs> Jerubbabel. Fits a boy, fits a girl. Call him Jerb for short. Jerubbabel, all right? Thank the Lord that in his infinite wisdom, he defined that a little bit farther for us. And called him Gideon. Because if not, we would never get through this, I promise you. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, Stop right there just for a second. Stop, stop, stop right there just for a second. Don't miss the importance of the fact that God spoke directly, poignantly, specifically to the person of Gideon. He spoke to him. I believe wholeheartedly that God is desiring to speak to every one of us who claim to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. To every one of his children. He wants to speak to us. What parent doesn't speak to their child? God wants to speak to us. So it's not a matter of if God's going to speak to us, but when God speaks to us, I'm afraid so often in my life and in what I've seen over years and years of ministry is this, so often we're not in a place that we can hear when he does speak. It's not a problem of God speaking. It's a problem of us and our hearing. It's not a problem with the voice of God. It's a problem with the ears of his children. It's not if God speaks to us, but when God speaks to us, are we in a place that we can hear? Now, let me go ahead and tell you. There are some obstacles to that. 
There are some obstacles from hearing the voice of God. Now, before we go any further, make sure you understand me. I'm not saying necessarily that God's going to speak to you audibly. I will say this. He's God. I'm not. That's what he chooses to do. He's still God. I'm still not. But most of the time, the way that God speaks to us is, number one, through his word. Number two, through the teaching and preaching and studying of that word, through of other believers in our life who wrap their arms around us in brokenness or joy and say, man, I believe you're messing up. Man, I believe I should encourage you here. That's how God most of the time speaks. But for many of us, there are things that prevent us from hearing. It's not a problem with the speaking of God, but the hearing of God. You know, stuff like sin. Unconfessed, unrepentant. I know God said not to. I know I shouldn't do this. I'm going to choose to because evidently I know more than God. Sin. Not just simply sin. Most of the time it's disobedience. God has clearly said, but for some reason I've got an excuse or a reason why I know better or why this doesn't apply to me. Disobedience. Busyness. Busyness is one of those things that if we're not careful, it will prevent us from hearing from God. Please hear my heart on this. Sometimes that's even busyness doing the good things. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the good things that we can't hear what God's trying to say for, to us for the better things, for the gooder things. That's the word, trust me. Sometimes it's simply just what I fall into and I see a lot of times with Perry is Perry needs to shut up and listen. There are all these reasons. So before we go any farther, before we even dig into this idea of obedience, if the voice of God is not speaking to you, if it's been years since God's heard from you, or you've heard from God, rather, maybe you should stop and say, Lord, what am I missing? What is it here? Not what is it there. What is it here that's keeping me from hearing what you have to say? Pick up in verse 2. The people <clears throat> with you, this is God speaking, remember, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying that my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Now, I want you to get this picture. The nation of Israel, led by its leader Gideon, is on the verge of war. He has with him 32,000 well-trained, well-armed soldiers. And God comes to Gideon before their great battle, before they are to enter into the next phase of warfare. God comes to him and says, we got a problem. Never what you want to hear when you're on the verge of war. we got a problem. we got a problem. Some of your boys are scared. Some of your guys, some of, so you need to go back to the camp. This is what God says now. Some of your soldiers are scared, and you need to go back and say, if you're scared, you need to leave and go home. And I want you to notice this. Gideon does exactly what God told him to do, but I believe 100% with all my heart, based on everything that I know throughout Scripture before this story and after this story about the person of Gideon, I believe Gideon was 100% obedient to what God told him, but he did not think a single man was about to leave. Not a single man. Even to this day, the Israeli army, from generations past to today, there can be some questions about maybe some of their tactics. There's a lot of questions about their equipment, but their courage has never been questioned. To this day, some of the bravest soldiers in the world, I know I'm American, so I should say outside of the U.S., are Israeli soldiers. They'll fight with nothing, anybody, anywhere, no matter what the case. So get this picture. Gideon returns. All right, so if y'all don't know this, the greatest TV show of all times is Andy Griffin. 
I don't know what y'all are laughing about. The greatest television show of all time is Andy Griffin. My daughter is addicted to Andy Griffin. We watch it every night, and it's great. But I sort of imagine, this is my mind going in 20 different places, I sort of imagine that Gideon gets his word from God. Okay, God, I'll go back. I'll talk to the boys. I'll tell them some of you is afraid. You know, you can go home. So he goes back, and he stands before the men, and sort of in that, like, Barney Fife voice. Y'all know what I'm talking about when Barney's about to say something? Men! <laughs> wow, that cough really helped with that. I've never been able to do that. that Man, uh, I've been talking to God, and God's thinking that maybe if some of you are a little afraid that you should go home at this point. <laughs> hmm. It's interesting that Gideon, I believe not expecting anything to happen, went and did exactly what God told him to do. See, along the way, we don't have time to really break into this, but I think there are a couple of hindrances that sometimes we can see to our absurd obedience. And one of those hindrances, if we're not careful, are our own expectations. See, sometimes God says, and well, God, you said, but, but here's what I know about to happen. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. And sometimes those expectations can be a little problematic. It says this. As we continue on in verse 3, it says, When Gideon gets done saying that, Verse 3, then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Remember, Israel is on the verge of war. Israel is just over the hill from its enemy. 32,000 soldiers stand before Gideon. Gideon says, hey, if you're afraid, you should go home, fully expecting not a single person to take a step, and 22,000 of those people walked away. Remember to go all the way back to how we define courage? Courage isn't the lack of fear, but rather when we put more weight on the risk than the reward. See, 22,000 men stood there and said, I might be trained. God might be God. This army might be this army, but I ain't doing what we're about to do. 22,000 men left. When Gideon stood before him and said, if anybody's afraid, you should go home. God weeded out the cowards. It's a good place for us to ask this. Are there any areas that we're lacking courage? See, what I've found in 42 years of life and a few years of ministry is most of the time when we look at stuff like this, personally, the man who's talking to me doesn't have to nail something down specifically. The Holy Spirit's already said, Perry, what about this? Perry, what about this area? What about this area? What about this area? Is there anything in your life, any area, any specific compartment of your life where you would say, you know, I'm lacking courage? Is there anywhere that God's calling you to take a stand that you're not willing to take a stand? Is there anything that God's saying walk away from, you're not willing to walk away from? Is there anything God's saying walk to? Is there anything God's saying do, don't do? Whatever God's saying, is there any area of your life where you're too afraid to take those steps? Because here's what I know. We just saw God test 32,000 men. And at the end of that testing, 10,000 remain. Are there any areas of your life you're not willing to stand? Let me ask you this. Are there any areas of your life, maybe pass that test, any areas of your life you would, you're not willing to stand if you're the only person that stands? If you're the only person in the world, the only believer of Jesus Christ, the only disciple of Jesus that God would say, do this, are you afraid to do it because you're the only person that would stand? I know this is going to be hard for y'all to believe, but my favorite topics in elementary school were... Lunch and recess. <clears throat> I know it's hard for y'all to believe looking at, at the. So as you get older, you know, the traumatic thing happens when you go from elementary school to middle school that they take away your favorite subject of recess. So at this point, by the time I enter into high school, there's only one favorite subject that I have. 
lunch. Okay? Now, here's what you need to know, and I know this can be hard for y'all looking at this physique that I got going on here. Lunch has always been a pretty important part of the day. Even in high school, all right, where our, our lunchroom was sort of broken out, there was like a little wing over here in the area. And I would get to myself and have my lunch because lunch is important. Lunch is an important part of the day is sitting down. Here's the other thing you should know about that. So I had some friends that were sort of hookwormy. Y'all know what I mean by hookwormy? Like bucko five, ringing wet. I'm the opposite of that. Been this size since sixth grade. I'm not making that up. That's how big I was. Been anyway, so we would go over there. They would all join around me. Because they were all mesmerized by my mom's ability to pack so much into a little brown paper bag. <laughs> I'm not making this up. They would like gather around like, what's in there today type thing. You know, I'd pull out sandwich, chips, nab, beanie weenies, apple, orange, one little bag. It was like the miracle bag, little stuff coming out. I still to this day, I work with a friend of mine who he might be five foot and weigh 101 maybe. And his mom would send him the same thing every day. A couple of chips, half a sandwich, and like half an apple cut up. He couldn't even eat all that all the time. All the guys would be gathered around. We were in our little nick and I'm pulling stuff out. One day, completely oblivious to me, a food fight broke out. Now, here's what you should know as we go any farther into this story. That upsets me even to this day now for one reason. <laughs> Number one, you don't waste food, okay? I was the little kid that never got told to clean his plate. Here again, y'all use your imagination a little bit on this. I know it's hard. Never did you have to tell me to clean my plate. Number two, I've been a tightwad since I un began to understand what a penny was. Like, whoa, I'll pick up a penny anywhere, that type of thing. So I'm in my own little world. I kid you not, this is my first reflex when this food fight broke out. I sort of took my lunch that I had unpacked. <laughs> <coughs> And I, I hemmed it up close, you know, so that I could protect it, or I don't know what I was doing. And I'm still, at this, I swore the panic set in. And I said, this is, going, this is getting out of hand a little bit because stuff's flying, hitting the wall, you know. And I'm thinking, can I catch that or should I stay here? <clears throat> I get the rest of my lunch down, and I, I'm seeing stuff flying every which way. Here's a good question. Where were the teachers at at this point? I thought about this this week. I was talking about sooner or later, somebody stopped it. All right, and there's food scattered everywhere, stuck to the wall, like snack pack, pudding things stuck. It's everywhere. The principal comes in. Obviously, he's furious. He stands up, and he says, we're going to sit here until whoever started this confesses. And at that point, I'm like, oh, man, we're going to be here for a while. This is not going to be good. And so you can imagine what a bunch of high school students thought about, you're going to sit here, not go to class, until somebody confesses, we're starting a food fight. We sat there like three hours. Not a single person would stand up and say, I was mad at this point because he said nobody could leave. I had to go to the bathroom thinking if I knew who started it, I would go make them stand up and confess to this. Whoever that person was, which I actually know who that person was, to this day, the principal finally had to come back in there and say, y'all go to class. We can't get you sitting here. That person never would stand up and do it. And you know, that's sort of a picture, if we're honest. That's funny. Okay. Wasteful costly but funny that but in reality sometimes that's the way if we're honest we are as disciples of Jesus Jesus I'll do it but please don't make me stand up by myself please don't make me be the only one please don't make me and in reality think back to a cross think back to a savior that went to that cross whether you would have been the only person in this world in need of a savior is there any area of your life that is only the Holy Spirit can do. He would put his finger on it and say, this is an area of courage that you need to do something different about. Because go all the way back to that idea of easy believism, of church consumerism. If we're not careful, we come in, we hear something, we dismiss it, and we walk back out the doors the same way that we came. 
But when the Holy Spirit of God would put his finger on something in our life, it's an opportunity for us to leave here as men and women that are more in the image of his son Jesus. Number two, absurd obedience (coughs) requires caution. Absurd obedience requires caution. Verse 4 says this, So the Lord said to Gideon, remember, from 32 to 10,000, the people are still too many. Now, can you imagine at that point, I'm sorry, I'm getting back to this, but can you imagine that point, what went through Gideon's mind? Are you kidding me? He's got the report. He knows the Midianites across the hill are roughly about 65,000 men strong. He knows that when he started this, he was about at half the force. And at this point, God has taken 22,000 of his soldiers and sent them home because they're afraid. And God would come back to him and say, Gideon, we got a problem. There's still too many soldiers, people here. So God tells him, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Quickly, before we go any farther, let's point out one little thing there. Gideon was told to go and take these people to the river. My, my mindset jumps in and says, nobody ever told him to drink water. Why did all these people start drinking water? That's a whole other thing. The biggest thing about this, notice what Gideon wasn't told. We're talking about obedience. Gideon's told. He does. But what was Gideon not told? He wasn't told what was about to happen. He just lost two-thirds of his army. God comes back and says, now there's still too many. Now I want you to take everybody and I want you to take them over here to the water. Now notice this. Gideon had no explanation of what was about to happen. But he was obedient anyway. As you talk about little hindrances, you know the cliff notes part of this, the extra part of this story. Sometimes I find in my own life the things that keep me from the simple obedience is just simply because I think I need all the details and I don't have them. If we're not careful... We forget the fact that he's God, and he doesn't have to tell us what's next. He doesn't have to tell us what's next after what's next. He doesn't have to tell us what the result is. The greatest story of that in the Bible is found in the person of Abraham. Abraham is settled. He's wealthy. He's got everything going for him, and God says, go. Never tells him where to go. And Abraham says, okay, let's go. Let's roll. He gets up and he goes. So many times in my own life, that's the thing that keeps me from being simply obedient to the stillness of the voice of God. I think he owes me an explanation. Gideon was given no explanation, no clue of what was to happen. Simply, you still have too many men, so take those men and take them to the water. It goes on to say this. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, we're in verse 5, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps... You shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, he's to do the same thing. Verse 6 says, And the number of those who lapped, putting their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his own home. Why on earth would God do that? Think about that. Why would God do that? Why would God take 32,000 men, take 22,000 of them away, leave 10,000 men, and then say, we still have too many, take them over here, and then of all things, 
The dividing factor is going to be how they drink water. The men who get out on all hands, hands and knees, all fours like a dog, stick their head in the water, which, by the way, you ever seen anybody drink water like that? Nobody told them to drink. Nobody told them how to drink. I just get this. See, y'all are looking at me a little funny. I, I had this crossroads of intervention in my life about 20 years ago where, where really everything that was stable fell out, and it forced me back to the Scriptures. And one of those things that came out as a result of that is I refused to read this like, oh, yeah, that should happen. That makes sense. Because it doesn't make sense. Remember the whole idea of absurd? Apart from the hand of a holy God, none of this makes sense. Why would God send them to the water? Why would they get down to drink? Why would men get out on all fours and drink water? Why would this happen? And why would God use this as such a big test in their life? Here's the thing that I can guarantee you, money back guarantee. There's never been a man, woman, boy, or girl that God has used that he has not at first tested. Now remember this. He's now tested these men twice. Money back guarantee. Whoever God uses, he tests. But the trick of that is we don't know how many tests there's going to be until God uses us in the way he's designed us and created us and formed us and fashioned us for. Why would God do that? Remember this. This is not modern warfare. This is not telecommunications and Humvees and 50 cows and helicopters and parachutes. No. These soldiers aren't miles and miles away from the enemy. Verse 1 tells us that the enemy is where? Just over the next hill. So the second test that God does to weed out the men that should not fight in this battle is remove those who do not use caution at all points and times in their life. Think about it. The men who are down on all hands and fours drinking water, where's their weapon? Hopefully it's beside them, somewhere. But the men who get out on one knee, take their hand, bring the water, they're on guard. They're cautious. Sometimes in our own life, God is going to use things to test us, to test the amount of caution that we have in our life. There are a couple of things that can lead us to lack caution. The first one is this, the church mode. We've talked about this a little bit already. But it's the idea that we come, we go, we repeat, we leave the same, we stand up, we sing a song because somebody tells us to, we throw a couple bucks in the offering basket that comes by, we come when it works, we don't show up when it don't, we repeat, go, come, repeat. That church mode, it makes us become in this area that, or in this mindset or in this pattern where we're just not cautious at all. 1 Peter 5 tells us this, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The danger with that church mode is that we put ourselves in a place that our enemy can eat our lunch. Also notice this, we're in danger when we put ourselves in a place that we give the devil an inch in any aspect of our life. Any aspect of our life. Remember what I just said? Be alert, be on guard. Be cautious because you have an enemy, not enemies plural, but you have an enemy. Your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not your boss. Your enemy is not your teacher, but you have an enemy. And the goal of that enemy is to absolutely use anything that you will allow to destroy you and mar the name of Jesus Christ. Be alert. Be on guard. Don't fall into the church mode. Be cautious. About two years after I graduated from high school, I got a phone call one Friday never forget this phone call. It was a girl who was in my class. She said, Perry, hey, how are you? Good. I, don't, I hate to call you and tell you this, but she named somebody's name and said, he committed suicide this morning. It was pretty traumatic for all of us. I, I graduated with just a handful of people. It was a small class. We were all a little shook up about it. And it, it, it was, 
It was tough. And we were at the funeral. The last guy that I would ever expect this. Funeral was over. We were standing around, leaning on the truck, talking a little bit. And he said this. He named the guy's name who had committed suicide. And he said, ever since I've heard this, I've kicked myself because I never asked him about his relationship with Jesus. He said, man, we hung out all the time. We fished. We hunted. He stayed at my house. I stayed at his house. We were together all the time. And now I'm standing here looking at him in a casket, and I can't say with absolute certainty that I know that he's standing in the presence of God because I was too scared and too stupid to ask him. See, I think sometimes if we're not careful, we get into this place of complacency and no caution, and we just let one day turn into another day, into another day, and into another day. We have no caution. Any areas of your life? where maybe there's a need to exhibit some more caution? Any areas of your life <coughs> where there's a need to draw a line in the sand? Any areas of your life that you know, if you're not careful, you've just fallen, fallen into the church mode and you're giving Satan an inch to do what he wants to do? Number three, absurd obedience requires commitment. Absurd obedience requires commitment. Now, I want you to notice this. I'm going to spare you a little bit because of time. The next few verses, this is what happens. Gideon's freaking out. I know that's hard for y'all to believe, but that's what's happening. Verses 7 through oh, about 16 tell us that that night Gideon couldn't even sleep. So he gets up and he's making some rounds around the camp. He's sort of walking towards the enemy's position a little bit, walking back and forth, and God spells out and gives him a specific battle plan. Remember, we've already established that Gideon was in a place that God could speak to him. Remember, we've automatically established he had the courage, he had the caution, he was obedient when he didn't know what was next, when he fully expected something different to happen. So now he's walking around at sort of the, the point of no return. He's walking around the camp, and God gives him a specific battle plan. Now, you're going to love this. Here's the battle plan. 300 men versus 65,000 men. Okay, if Perry's conjuring up a battle plan, it's going to look like bombing, tanks, air raids, napalm, you name it. We're bringing it all. This is what God says. I want you to take your weapons. I want you to take them back to the armory and check them back in because we don't even need them. And I imagine Gideon's walking around that night thinking, I have absolutely, ain't no way. 300 of us, God, and we're supposed to take our weapons and just lay them to the side. It gets better. God says, now this is what I want you to do instead of your weapons. You're going to love this. Y'all ready? Everybody? I want you to go, okay? I want you to check out, check weapons in. I want you to check out some trumpets. God's thinking, trumpets like, trumpets. All right? Check out your trumpet. Every man needs a trumpet, okay? All right? Then, God says, it gets better. I want you to go get, every man needs a trumpet and a mason jar, okay? This is southern Israel. They went... <laughs> <laughs> southern Israel and it was not cannon season so go get your mama's mason jars and get your trumpets okay Gideon this is what you're going to do and God's all excited and Gideon's thinking dang no way I'm going back to these 300 men that are still here and I'm going to tell them and God said and we're going to need some torches along the way okay he's like sure trumpets mason jars torches got it so Gideon goes back to his men third time you got to give it to him 
Third time, goes back to his men. This time, Barney Fife voices in full swing. Men, been talking to God. Now imagine some of them thinking, boy, every time he talks to God, this costs us a little something. He's talking to God. God, men, we don't even need our weapons. And they think Gideon has lost it. He is off the deep end. Take your weapons, check them back in. Check our weapons back in. Okay, Gideon, this is what we're going to check our weapons. Yeah, and when you check your weapons in, you're going to get a trumpet. And a trumpet. Okay, we're going to get a trumpet. A minute ago, I couldn't help. I'm sorry. My, I, I'm just running. A minute ago, when Rick was talking about the worship, what y'all need to know, Perry can't play the radio, honestly. <clears throat> If he hadn't pointed out we didn't have a drum, I'd have never even noticed it. I was like, <laughs> only thing I ever think is just make it loud because I sing really bad, and if I sing loud, nobody hear me if the, th- you know, if the thing's loud. So I'm thinking there had to be at least a couple guys like, I can't play no trumpet. What am I? <laughs> Gideon has lost it. I, I'm good with a sword, good with my knife, got my spear, but he wants me to lay that down, get a trumpet, go get a mason jar, get a mason jar, and get a torch. All right, verse 17 says this. And Gideon... I got to say this. Gideon didn't have an ounce of confidence in himself. What we're seeing, this has nothing to do with Gideon. This has to do everything with the person in whom his confidence was in. This had nothing to do with what Gideon thought him or those 300 men could do. It had everything to do with the fact that he had come to such a place of desperation in his life, specifically in this situation, that if God didn't show up and show out, he had no hope. And I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt for many of us, that's why we never see God do anything. Because we're afraid to get to that point of desperation that we look up with hands in air and say, God, I can't, you have to. Especially for us guys. I'm not cracking on us, but we want to put our hands on it. We want to fix it. We want to make it right. We can't do that. We're talking about the realm of spirituality, of light versus darkness, of heaven versus hell, of an eternity. And we've trusted that God would intervene and save our souls, but we can't trust him with the little things. I'm talking to Perry, hopefully somebody else, but so many times I can't trust God with the little things, but I think I could trust him with the big things. Gideon would have never been at the place that he was in if he had not trusted him in every little aspect along the way. And Gideon comes back, whether he's afraid or questioning or whatever the case may be, and in verse 17, he stands before his men with a confidence, not in himself and not in those 300 men, but in the person in whom they represent. Verse 17, it says this, And he said to them, Look at me. You don't say that after all of these circumstances if you're hanging on to your own strength. Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19 says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, they were divided into three, three companies of a hundred, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp, and beginning in the middle of the watch, when they had just set the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies, they all blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Don't miss this in verse 21. So we talk about assert obedience requires complete commitment. Verse 21, it says, every man, not 299, 
all 300 men stood 100% committed in his place around the camp. I've got to say this before we go any farther. God's not called you, asked you, or challenged you to do what he's asked me to do. Same way God's not asked me to do what he's called you to do. God's given you a place. There's a reason throughout the scriptures we're referred to as a body. The head's not more important than the toe. An elbow's not more important than a thumb. We all have a place and a purpose and a job to do. And every one of those 300 men, not one lacking, stood and did exactly what God through their leader Gideon had asked them to do. And it goes on to tell us because of that, all the army ran. They cried out and they fled. Verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled. You see how absurd that is? You see how absurd it is that God would take 32,000 soldiers, whittle them down to 10,000, and then again whittle them down to 300, would tell every one of them, don't bring a sword with you to this battle. Go get a trumpet, get a jar. We're going to need some torches. You're going to blow the trumpet, break the jars, and I'm going to take care of the rest. You know how ironic it is that not a single one of those 300 had a sword? Because in verse 22 it says that God in some way evidently confused them to where they turned on themselves and anybody they saw with a sword they struck and they killed themselves. We won't think God's just coming up with something random when he says leave your weapons. God's got a plan. Here's the ironic part about the plan of God. Most of the time when we think God is doing nothing, he's doing more than we can begin to think or imagine. Our job is not to question the plan of God. I'm saying that to Perry, not to you. Because Perry wants to put God in this neat little box called Timex to where, God, I, I prayed once, you should answer. And I want to put it in a neat little box with a bow and said, God, this would make sense. And God, if we could do this this way, this would work. And God, if we could do this, that's not what God is required to do. God's job is to be God. Perry's job is to be obedient. God's more than capable of doing his job questions whether Perry's going to be obedient. It's not by happenstance. It's not by circumstance. It's not by coincidence. It's not by chance that God would spell out a plan that tells soldiers to leave their weapons and then at the end of it, he would cause the opposing army to get so confused that anybody they saw with a weapon that they would slaughter, that they would kill themselves and run out of the camp. But don't miss the fact that it was every man in his place. There was a total commitment there that allowed God to do what God had already planned to do. So what about you? What's the area of absurd obedience that God would speak to you about this morning? Can we be overly honest for just a second? Just me, you. Overly honest. Tonight, you're probably not going to camp over and heal from an army that wants to destroy you. Tomorrow morning, God's probably not going to tell you to take a trumpet, some jars, and take on anybody so how does this affect us I mean in reality it's a cool story but how does it affect us when we leave here today how does it affect us tomorrow when we get up and go to work how does it affect us tomorrow when we get up and get on the bus how does it affect us day in and day out of who we are we're not going to be called to take on an army of nobody so how does it change the way that we live See, I believe wholeheartedly for every one of us, there are areas that God continually speaks on. There's technical terms for it, but it's the whole process of growing more and more in the image of Jesus. 
You know, for some of us, it might just simply be that we go home and we're not a jerk to our wife when we come home tomorrow because we're tired. You know, for some of us, it might be that guy, girl at work, that God continues to say, you need to tell them about Jesus. You need to tell them God loves them. You need to tell them. What is it that God's calling us to do? How's it going to affect us? Who we are, how we live. What is it that God, for some of us, as we went through this, uh, this series of, of absurd, God might be calling us to give. See, I can say this because I'm not paid. God don't want your money. God wants you. He wants your time, your resources, your energy, your efforts. He wants you. If your money's part of that and you get mad at it, I don't care. That's him, not me. For some of us, it might just simply be we need to start giving of what makes us who we are. If that's money, if that's our time, if that's our skill, some of us need to find an area to serve. I'm partial, no apologies. Roughly 50 kids are over there right now, screaming, pooping, crying. It gets out of hand. You say, Perry, I can't. Can you hold a baby? I got a place for you. Can't hold a baby? Can you make sure a fifth grader don't jump off a table? I got a place for you. Can you stand there and make sure somebody, nobody walks back here unless they got the right color lanyard on and when the day's over, can you get a sticker from them? I got a place for you. And it's not just children's ministry. Can you stand at the door and open the door and smile and say, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Hug somebody's neck, shake somebody's hand. Maybe you can't do that. Maybe you can do the mystical thing that Perry can't do. There's a system back there that they don't let me within about 10 feet of. You might be able to push buttons and make things happen that I don't even know what it means when it happens. I don't know. But I know this. For every one of us, simple obedience starts with small steps. And absurd obedience starts with the steps of simple obedience. It's little things. Who you are, how you respond, what you do, where you are, what you say when you're there. It's all those things. It's the first thing you can do. Number two, there's not even any points to this. This is just in my own mind. Please hear my heart on this because this is very important. How does this affect who we are? From the first Sunday that we ever stepped foot in the Anthem Church, Rico and I connected. That first Sunday, we left. My wife said this. There are a bunch of people there who are tired. We came from a church plant. We know tired. Remember that. So to those of you who have been here longer than me, been here more than a year, more than two years, more than three years, four years, been here from the get-go, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, We're drinking from a well that you dug. Know this. Hang on. Your step of obedience is just simply to hang on. Reinforcements are on the way, I promise you. There's a book, and I'm not even going to say who wrote it because I'm not one of those people that like to recommend a person. But, But in there, there's a little phrase, and it says, God, with feeble fingers, I cling to the edge of your grace. For some of you, your step of obedience is with feeble fingers just to continue to cling to the edge of grace. Hold on. We're grateful. We're standing on your shoulders. We're drinking from the well that you dug. Hold on. For some of you, your first step of obedience is going to be the most important. I'm not foolish or ignorant enough to believe whether there's one person or a thousand in this room that there's probably someone very much like me on February 1st, 1989, who had known and heard and could regurgitate the gospel, Jesus, cross, all those things 
but had never stood at the crossroads of knowing the person of Jesus Christ in such a way that it affects who you are. For some of you in this room, I believe wholeheartedly, today your step of obedience is after years and years of running and years and years of saying, I'll do it later, it's to respond to the gospel, to admit, I'm a sinner, he's a savior, he died on a cross for me, and allow him to change and transform your life from this day forward. For every one of us, it's not an army, it's not a battle, it's not over a hill. It's the simple things of obedience. From point A to point B to point C. Where God's telling you respond. God's telling you serve. God's telling you go. God's telling you stop. God's telling you start. God's telling you to hang on. Or God's telling you today is the day that you stand at the foot of my cross and meet me. Not as a theory, but as a person. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this building. Lord, not so that we can look and say that we've got a building, but Lord, so that we can have a place that we can stand in freedom and proclaim the truth and the goodness of who you are. Father, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice right now. <clears throat> Lord, whatever area, whatever step of obedience that you are calling them to right now, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give them the guts and the courage to respond according to you. Lord, if it's a sin that for too long has kept them from hearing from you, then I pray that today would be the day that that sin is laid down in order to take up your plan of obedience for their life. Lord, for those who are tired, and wore out, would you build them up and energize them, give them the ability to hold on. And Lord, for any person in this room that does not know you, not in theory, but as Savior, in such a way that it changes who they are Monday through Friday, then God, I pray right now, as our worship team leads us in a song, that they would cry out to you, God, I'm a sinner, you died for my sins, and that you would save their soul. Lord, I don't pray that it stops there. I pray that you do such a transforming, redeeming work in their life that they can't sit where they are and walk out of this building without proclaiming what you've done in their life. Lord, we give you the glory. As my brother was praying this morning, we give you the glory for what you will do in 2018, for 40 souls that will come to know you, for the work of this church that will be bigger and better and stronger and faster. God, we give you the glory. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.